That's great. John is awesome uh, servant. Uh, maybe you know him. Uh, maybe you don't. He's, you should. And Kareen as well. The whole KC world. Um, I don't know who we're trying to recruit in the room. When I look around, I'm like, pretty sure everyone's serving in there. <laughs> you know. And thank you for what you do. Um, you probably don't get thanked enough. Certainly, usually not by the kids, uh, unless they're prompted at that age. But um, the work you do to serve the kids um, has uh, a meaning and a purpose beyond even what you could probably imagine. A uh, couple uh, uh, notes before we jump into the, uh, the message for today. Uh, number one, we will uh, be meeting here next week, but it's going to be a little different than what we used to. We're, we're uh, combining uh, services, which we're going to do uh, a number of times during the summer, potentially every week. More on that to follow, um, trying to conserve or stay within the limits of the resources that we have, uh, particularly during the summer. Uh, but this room will be reset uh, again in a different fashion. I think it's going to go back to a little bit more of an auditorium style uh, to a hot host uh, what would probably be a lot more people. Um, so be ready for that right back here next week. Um, we'll be kicking off a new series that I think we're going to call, Yeah, They Lied to You. <laughs> I think we're going to stay with that. We'll be talking about uh, sort of a shift in tone in in Mark, uh, in the book of Mark, um, where Jesus starts to really take on, um, in a a manner speaking, the lies of the world. What we have been told is good and beautiful and right is often wrong. And it's it's shocking, quite honestly, that the stuff that Jesus is dealing with in the first century... Uh, isn't really all that different than the stuff we're dealing with today. It looks different on the surface, but the core issues are the same. And we have been lied to. And not only that, it's worse than that. We've bought the lies uh, in a lot of different ways. And we need Jesus to show us where we have uh, misperceived what is true and good and beautiful. So we're going to talk about that. Um, for those of you that are watching and attentive to the Franz Road property that the Northwest is trying to secure, um, that was a roller coaster ride. I am sick to death of, honestly. It, uh, it is up and down and up and down. It's not gone yet. <laughs> and that's a good thing. We met with the homeowners that live in the vicinity of that property, and they see no reason why that, that property wouldn't be a church. In fact, they would support it. And that's a huge move in the direction of, the, uh, of a rezoning. But there are so many things that have to fall in place um, that honestly, it's a roller coaster I don't even want you on. What we need to do is remember that we are a church. We're a good church. We have purpose and meaning in the communities that we're in, and we just need to keep doing that and allow God to figure out how it is we're going to meet, where we're going to meet, and when we're going to meet. And that we just need to be there when we can and be the church. And we've got some of the best people we have in the church working on this issue. And and it will come about the way God would have it come about. So stay tuned, stay patient, don't get sucked into the waiting game. Just be the church. Okay. A couple other things before we run the message. Number one. Your uh, communion uh, that you just took um, is uh, laughable. Listen, you're eating out of a pla- plastic cup, and the, the the bread isn't even real. You didn't you didn't wash your hands. 
um, and no, no, no elder uh, delivered you that juice and that bread. It doesn't even count the way you did it. It's ridiculous. And I'm glad the kids are gone, <clears throat> honestly, because I don't know what y'all are doing as parents, but uh, some, of those, some of those boys have long hair. Uh, some of those girls are wearing skirts and shorts that are above their knee already, and they're only four years old. I don't know what they're going to be wearing when they're 16. And you grandparents, look at you. You created this whole mess. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It it wouldn't be 20 years ago where that'd be very true about that communion. You you would have been out of alignment with, with God. And the way you just took communion seems so irreverent. This is what's going on in Matthew chapter 7. This is, this is what's happening. Jesus' disciples are eating, but they, they haven't washed their hands. Ceremonially. It's not just, there's a, there's a big whole deal, and they're not doing it. And the Pharisees are observing this, the teachers of the law, those who are sacred and understand what sacred is. They are the standard. And they see this going on. And they say to Jesus, why don't your disciples, this is Mark chapter 7, verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands. It's not an innocent question. They're not like, hey, how come they're doing that? The question is loaded. It is, look, you're declaring yourself to be the son of God. That's impossible because not only your disciples not obeying the commands and the traditions that have evolved from the godly people, you're not doing it. You, you, the Son of God, are leading people away from God. We are what godliness looks like. What we do is what God has ordained to be done. And if you don't look like us, you don't do like us. You're, you're ungodly. Instead of your disciples defiling themselves, why don't your disciples sanctify themselves by following the pattern of our sanctified example? We're godly. We know what godly is. Why wouldn't you, the Son of God, direct them in a way of godliness? These people are trusting you, Jesus, and, and you're, you're not just allowing them to drift away from God. You're, you're, you're helping them. Why aren't you setting these people straight? That's a good question. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever been in a situation like that on either side of it? I bet you have. If you've, if you've been in church leadership... If you have ever raised a child in a Christian home or are doing so, if you've ever been a Christian mentor or a discipler, 
you have understood it to be your job to point out biblical misbehavior, right? Don't you naturally look at the the world and think to yourself, that is either godly or not godly behavior. You start with your spouse, your friend, your teammates, whatever it is. If you take your if you take your Christianity seriously, you would be irresponsible, would you not, to allow biblical disobedience, misalignment to keep going. How could you face God? We've been there. We would say, yeah, but we but what we enforce is actually biblical. We know like I know what's biblical and what's not biblical. I wouldn't ask somebody to do something that's not biblical and say it's biblical. Anything that I would be asking someone to do has been, you know, already shown to be biblical. So this is exactly what they're saying. They're not trying, they're not making this up. This is a complete understanding of what's biblical. Or maybe you've been on the other side of it. I know you've been there. Somewhere, sometime, someone must have corrected you on biblical grounds. Exercised tough love. And the inference, right? Or maybe it was straight up said that what you're doing isn't Christian. It's not right before God. It's not, it's not God's will for your life. Have you ever heard me say that to you? Somebody said, God, I was praying and God said to me, God told me, it's like, oh man, here comes a big one. What are you supposed to do with that? This is not just me telling you your direction. This is God telling me, telling you. This would be like a respected pastor or trusted older Christian in your life coming to you and saying, why are you allowing your children to go there or do that? I noticed your children weren't doing this or they weren't doing that. I went, I went to, all, to the altar for prayer once when I was a young adult. It's a very meaningful moment in my life. And it was in a fairly Pentecostalish kind of a church. I had a number of different church experiences when I was college and young adults. I was just searching around for where, where was God. And so I go out for prayer. It was fine. <clears throat> but one of the guys that had prayed for me just stayed with me for like 45 minutes after the service with one intention. And it was to get me to pray in a spiritual language. It got so awkward. It was as though I wasn't really arriving. That God wasn't meeting me there if there wasn't some physical manifestation of the Spirit showing up. I have room in my theology for tongues. I have friends that speak in tongues. But that particular moment was like weird. This person was just like, and we would stop praying and he would look at me like, are you okay? 
Like, why is this? Like, for this person, apparently, whenever that happened, he just, it just happened. You know what the effect of that was? Something's wrong with me. God is not near me. I've, I, I'm somehow alienated. By, right? You've probably been on the receiving end of it. Christian churches have split and split and split for centuries. Christian relationships have splintered and splintered and splintered since the beginning of time on biblical grounds. Differing views on what's right and what's wrong, what's central, what's peripheral, what's sacred, what's mundane, what's biblical, what's extra biblical. Thousands of churches have gone defunct because the existing leadership couldn't see past their own commitments to certain practices to make room for what God was bringing about with the next generation. And then the church just dies. I bet, I bet you, and at least someone that you know, has left the church because your view was that the decisions and directions of that church uh, weren't just unfavorable to you, but that you saw them as unbiblical or somebody did What is going on here that Jesus is leaning into? Should Jesus' disciples have washed their hands? Or were the teachers trying to enforce something that they shouldn't have? Was it wrong to wash? Was it right to confront the non-washing disciples? That's actually not the debate. That's not the debate that Jesus is having. Interestingly enough, he's, <laughs> he doesn't bite at all on this. The whole thing is, isn't behavior at all. Jesus doesn't actually make any direct commentary on the custom itself. He cuts to the heart. What Literally, we'll see. He says, you know, when they ask him a question, he says, you know, Isaiah had it right. You're bringing charges... Uh, you that are bringing charges, you're hypocrites. He didn't talk about whether the washing was right or wrong. He said, all y'all that are coming here and telling us about washing, you are hypocrites. And here's what Isaiah said and what Jesus said to them in the words of Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. This, This is what he said. Your adoration has no depth. Your praise is fake. These people, Isaiah says, Jesus repeats, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. The teachings are merely human rules. Their teachings are merely human rules. What he is saying here is your authority as a teacher, your stature, which biblically, scripturally, is always built on character. Stature and authority in the church of God is always built on character. Jesus is saying, look, your authority is built on competence. Which is super interesting, right? Think about this. This is a little side note. I, 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 would, I would go on record to say that nearly 
nearly 100%, some very high percentage of popular Christian leaders who fail and fall, this is at the root of it. They got where they are through competence. They're very good at what they do, whether it's preaching or organizational growth or even development of other people. They get their own competence. They read their own press. They get raised up. They rise, 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 and rise. They're in God's world, and God raises his leader on character. There's no character, so they fall down to the level where they should be. And this is what he's telling these guys. Your teachings are merely human rules. Your authority is built on competence. You have let go of the commands of God and you're holding to human traditions. You're no longer gripped by what God has done and what God can do. You find your significance through what you can do. You're hypocrites. It's not the custom that's the actual problem here. It wasn't these dirty-handed men were, that they were ungodly or not, but the teachers were calling out wrong while they were wrong. You remember uh, the story of the woman that was caught in adultery in, uh, in uh, John 8 it, uh, shares that story. Remember, she was caught in adultery. And what what does Jesus say to her once everybody leaves? He says, who condemns you? She says, nobody. And he says, neither do I. And then what does he say to her? Go and sin no more. The issue wasn't whether or not she was a sinner or not. She was. The issue was everybody that was going to throw a rock was a sinner. (laughs) So Jesus is like, go ahead and throw a rock if you've never been a sinner. If you're not, you're not a sinner. It isn't that that it was, is it a sin or not a sin? The issue was hypocrisy. Same. That is the problem that he's bringing to heart. At least the way it looks at the surface. Hypocrisy. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. You're demanding compliance, Jesus said, in a biblical extrapolation of law, but you got workarounds for the clearest of God's commands for your own lives. And he just, he just throws down right here. He uses a great example. He says, you understand what Moses said about honoring your mother and father and that those who dishonor, disrespect their parents should be put to death. This is pretty high, severe. Like, this is a big deal to God. Honor your parents or the punishment is severe. He says, y'all know that. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban. <laughs> These particular teachers, and it was, it was commonplace throughout the Jewish society, that if you gave big portions of your own estate to the church, it was called sacred. And Jesus says, and by doing that and calling that holy and essentially shaming people for not doing that, you're actually taking away resources they need for their mom and their dad. You're perpetuating a very 
the disobedience of a very clear purpose of God for your own benefit. Y'all are jacked up is what Jesus, I'm paraphrasing. Y'all are jacked up. You are messed up. This goes way beyond hand washing. So what's our take home here? Is it to not be fundamentalist, to, to not practice legalism, to not lord it over others? Well, those things can be dangerous. They can. They can be hurtful to the gospel. They can be hurtful to people. They, it can be divisive. It is divisive. But that's not the issue. In fact, throughout the Bible, and, and you would see this even in your own life, God calls certain people to a, a, a exorbitantly high level of purity. There are certain people, you know, you think about the Nazarites and the, and the Levites in the Bible, they were set aside to be pure. There are, there, are, there are people among us like that that have been called to a level of purity. Most of us can't even can only imagine. God does that. But his relationship with those people isn't dependent upon their success or that, but those obediences. That's not where the relationship lands. That's not what we're learning here is to not be legalistic. Right or wrong, that's, that's not what's at issue here. Is it the other side? Is it that we should resist and debunk those who try to put their religion on you? Well, those situations can be pretty toxic, abusive, traumatic. Some of you have experienced that kind of spiritual abuse in the church. And we, we should deal with that, just like we should deal with legalism. But we will not have solved the problem that Jesus is highlighting just simply by ejecting zealots from the church. It's not about do or not do. The problem is deeper than that. So what is it? Here's the, the problem. Jesus says, he turns to the crowd and he says, listen to me, everyone, understand this. And he explains the problem. But what we need to notice in the very first part of his address to the crowd is he's talking to everybody. Not just the Pharisees and these teachers. Everybody, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Jesus is speaking here to everyone who has gathered, including presumably the sick that he just healed and those who brought the sick to be healed. The first part of the problem is to recognize we are part of the problem. It is not just the legalist and it's not just the resistor of, it's not, it is, we, we all fall into this space of, of this issue, which I realize I haven't clearly defined for you yet. And hypocrisy begins to define it. You know who, you know who, this, this is like proof that affects everybody. It, it, it affected Peter. Peter. The, maybe, maybe the one of the greatest disciples. The rock, Jesus calls him. Jesus uh, has gone to sit at the right hand of the, the Father. Paul has been uh, reached by Christ and converted radically so and is pressing the gospel out into spaces where it's never been before to the Gentile world, the non-Jew world. 
Peter's with him. They're, they're the disciples, a few of them are doing this ministry. They're on the mission field. They're pressing it out. Paul walks into the room and Peter and sees Peter. And this is, this is, how, this is how Mark covers it. A lot of Mark, by the way, is his compilation of, of Peter's experiences with Christ and as a follower. And so Mark covers this. This is one of them. When Cephas, Peter, by his name given by Jesus, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Heavy words. And Paul hasn't been saved that long. And Peter, if I was Peter, I'd be like, hey, you know, I, I, were you ever with Jesus? Like I was, you sleep with him, you eat with him, you go, yeah. You're telling me? Yeah, Paul's like, I condemn, this is bad. And here's why. Before certain men came from James, so James is a Jew, he's one of the leaders in Jerusalem, he's a, a powerful, uh, now Christian Jewish leader. Before certain men came from James, he used to, Peter, eat with the Gentiles. This is a big step for a Jew. This is, a, this is basically a Jew eating pork. It, after, before that, and probably didn't wash his hands either. Right? He, is, he is not uh, falling in alignment with these extrapolated commands of God. He is doing what Jesus taught him, which is it's not about the obediences. It's not about what goes in. It's, and he's like, he would eat with the Gentiles. <laughs> but when James and the guys showed up, he backed away from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to that group. So he's eating with the Gentiles because he's free and it's okay. And the gospel has him covered on that. It's not about those things anymore. And then the Jews walk in who still obey those, many of those rules. And Peter backs up and he's like, no, I wasn't eating with these guys at all. I don't, have, I don't know what you're talking about. And Paul's like, wrong, wrong. Not just wrong that you're lying. But you're stepping away from the gospel, Peter. And then other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. The very message that they're taking to the Jews is that it's not about what you eat. It's not about whether you wash your hands. It's not about whether you've lived a good life or you can live a good life. It is about the saving mercy and grace of God in Jesus. And Peter's suddenly making it about eating. And others are following in that. And where are the Jews? Where are the Gentiles left? It's got to be confusing. This doesn't align with your teaching. And that's why Paul is very serious about this. Even Peter. Peter. The hypocrite. It's all of us. It's the first thing we've got to notice. The second thing is the root problem. And Jesus lays it out. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. It is what comes out of a person that defiles them. The issue at hand is not that of ritual purity or even what traditions Jesus' disciples ought to follow or not. The deeper problem of our hypocrisy is the state of our heart. Jesus says, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. You can't fix your heart by cleaning up your behavior or your hands. And he names some things. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. Anybody who's going to be mm, sincere 
Here's that list. And when Jesus ties it to the heart, they know it's true. He says, look, you got to understand, it's not what you take into yourself that makes you impure. It's the things that come out of you that expose that you are impure. Whatever you practice, Jesus is saying, whatever traditions you do or don't uphold, these are, they, these are not the things that by themselves get you ready for the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches on this a lot. The Sermon on the Mount is very much about this. Here's how it starts. He says, don't think that I have come to abolish, this is in Matthew chapter 5, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's interesting to hear Jesus say that, right? It's, it, we don't get to heaven. We don't get to redemption with God. We don't get to a, a new relationship with him through the law. But Jesus says, I'm not coming to abolish the law. I'm coming to fulfill it. What does that mean? He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? He's like, it, it, how, you, you couldn't possibly have a righteousness better than what the Pharisees ex, exposed outwardly. They were perfect. How could you possibly have greater righteousness than a Pharisee? How, how could the law be fulfilled in a deeper way than it is when the Pharisees are living it out perfectly? Because it is deeper. It is about the heart. The way of more righteousness than the Pharisees isn't to be better out here. It's to have a heart that's better. Jesus says, I'm not coming to to abolish the law. I want the law to be fulfilled. I don't want you to just not murder. He says, I want you to not be angry. I don't want you to just not cheat on your spouse. I want you to have no lust in your heart. He said, this is the fulfillment of the law. The law isn't just about how it comes out. It is that it is good and right through and through you. It's all of us. We all have a heart issue. That's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees are given in the platform to talk about what's true to everybody within earshot. When I said to you, your communion, your Lord's Supper exhibition is a joke, what did you think? If you know me, you're like, it's probably not serious. But what if I was serious? What if I came in and I was just ridiculing you for your kids and your parenting and your grandparenting and the way you express your religion. What happens in your heart? Is it nice? It's not nice. Probably take a swing at me. That's the problem. I would be a severe problem. It would be fair to say that that'd be wrong (laughs) for me to do that. Come here and just start swinging like that. But what happens in our hearts when that happens is not okay with God. It exposes the very thing that he's talking about. 
Look, the, the people that are up there talking and saying you should wash your hands, that dude that's telling you your communion is all wrong, it ain't about that. It's about how you're reacting to him, and it's about their heart. All of us have a problem with our heart. So what do we do? Well, a couple things. I have a little time left. Oh, no, I don't. Uh, be about the heart. <laughs> Obedience is good, and it's fine, and you should do it. But it wouldn't be true to think that being obedient or requiring it from others leads to godliness. That's where we go astray. Godliness is a heart issue. So we've got to make it a life pattern and an aim to be deeply changed and transformed, not just in our behavior, but in our heart. This is how Jesus moves on in his Sermon on the Mount when he talks about anger. He says, look, I don't want you to be angry. I, I, want you to, or I don't want you to just not murder. I don't want you to be angry in your heart. He doesn't leave it at that. If he leaves it at that, what are we left to do as Christians? What do we typically do as Christians? If we want to obey that command, don't murder, but also don't be angry in your heart. How does that look? What do we do? Well, we don't what? We don't show our anger. And that's what it means to be a good Christian. You don't murder, but you also don't show you're angry. Is, is that getting to the issue? No, you're angry. You're just not showing it. And God says, we need to go after that. And Jesus converts most of the commands of the Bible into transformative initiatives. He says, you don't get to God by obeying these commands, but by obeying these commands, you can be part of God's work of transforming your heart. Listen to what he says to do about your anger. Unless your righteousness passes right, you have heard that it was said, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't be angry with your brother or your sister. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're worshiping God, right? This goes back to what he was saying at the beginning that Isaiah said. Your worship is not real. It has no depth. Jesus is saying, let's give your worship some depth. Let's work on your heart instead of your worship style. If you come to worship and you've got something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar. Don't come and give me gifts and act like you love me and you're giving stuff to me when you're angry with somebody. That is superficial and wrong. We need to work on your heart. So go and make it right with that person and then come back. And now that you've been working on your heart and you recognize you need the work of God in your heart, now you come and worship and give me your gift from a true place. Be about the heart. Let your obedience be a tool, not a trophy. You with me? Let your obedience be a tool, not a trophy. Come alongside. Okay, this is important. It's all of us. We all have a heart problem from now until we die and see him face to face. So if you are in a discipleship space, don't take the one-up position. Get beside. Come alongside with another person, no matter where you are on your journey, and allow the discipleship of Jesus to happen while you're alongside one another. We never escape the reality that we need Jesus and our hearts are not yet finished. Come alongside. Invite someone into a life where you're seeking a heart that is transformed. That leads me to number three. 
receive mercy and offer mercy. In the end of that Peter Paul story, it says, we who are Jews by birth are not sinful and not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ. So we can be justified by faith, not by our works of the law. For it is by grace, he says in Ephesians, you have been saved, not by yourselves. It's the gift of God. What we do is we make life about the heart. We come alongside others in the process. And the core thing that happens in our discipleship is that we receive the grace of God again and again because we know the depth of depravity that our heart is capable of. No matter how obedient and wonderful you become, and many of you are, most of you are, at least to me, your heart will always require the gift of grace in the presence of God. So live there. Be about the heart. Be alongside. Receive the mercy and the grace of God. Let me give you a moment. This is, this is, this is one of the best gifts you're going to be given all week, I promise you. Take a moment and remember again that no matter how wonderful and good you are, that you have received and you can receive and you continue to receive the grace of God. Take a moment and remember, no matter how horrible you've been, no matter how far you have to go, that you have and will continue to receive the grace of God. And while you receive it, humbly recognizing the condition of your heart and your need for Jesus, enjoy the moment of true worship to God that isn't superficial, that isn't fake, that is real because you're living at this deep place of mercy and grace. Take a moment. Take a moment.